0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network, South Asian Studies. Today we are talking about this brilliant new book called Vernacular English, Reading the Anglophone in Postcolonial India, which came out this year from Princeton University Press. We are talking with the author Akshaya Saxena. Aksha is Assistant Professor of English at Vanderbilt University. Her areas of study are 20th and 21st century literature and media of the English-speaking world. She is the author of this book we are going to talk about today, Vernacular English, uh, and also the co-editor of Thinking with an Accent, which is coming out in 2023 from University of California Press. And her scholarship can also be found in Cultural Critique, Aerial Interventions, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Aksha, thank you so much for talking to us and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Sharanak. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad to be here.
2: Uh, My first question... uh, so I read your um, acknowledgement section, which is something I do. I don't skip it ever. Um, and uh, you begin by describing the book as, and I quote, "It's a book about learning to know again what we thought we knew well." And it really resonated with me. Uh, we were talking a little bit about um, JNU where we both went right before this. And, you know, J- if you go to JNU and you do an English masters there, you kind of you are in the midst of Indian English uh and as a critical formation so you think you know it well but then you go back and know it again what made you want to do that what made you want to write this book
1: yeah thank you for that question and i love that you read the acknowledgement section it's a guilty pleasure of mine too and i'm also glad that you're sort of asking me how this project began because the book began rather differently it began with you know a study of hindi newspapers and and that study actually never made it into the final version. So I'm glad that I have a chance to talk about it. So Vernacular English is a scholarly book about the life of English in India. And like all scholarly books, it sort of grew in different stages, at different points, different ideas sort of took over. But but as I was sort of completing it, what became clear to me by the end was that it's also a deeply personal book. And by that, I don't mean that this book is about me at all, but that it grew out of my observation, kind of like you pointed out, that there was a difference in how we, and I'm appropriating you, bringing you into the fold as well, how we, as students of English literature in India, studied English in the classroom and how we lived. Language outside of the classroom. So I write about this in the introduction, but inside the classroom, you know, we were obviously like reading post colonial theory, like we were very aware of the fact that English is a colonial language. In India, it has a violent legacy, it has a role in transnational capitalism. But outside, and this is sort of the origin story of the project, I would see my grandmother who did not know a word of English read English words in the Hindi newspaper Jagran, that we subscribed to um, at the time and then she would pick up English words from that reading them in you know the, it, it, the Dev Nagari script and then use them and it made me wonder about sort of the limits of a language and like at what point does English become Hindi right like how does how do languages sort of live in India and and where else does English live in India? And so so that's where the project began. In the beginning, I was thinking about linguistic hybridity a lot and translation, but it sort of grew into this bigger project about what we think of when we think of the English language. Um, And that's actually one of the threads in the book in the different chapters as well, uh, because I'm sort of at each moment, like talking about speakers of English who may not register as speakers of English and and what would change about our understanding of language itself, but especially English, if we were to take those embodied mediations of language seriously.
2: Hmm. Um, So, you know, I I really like the way in which you describe, it's very simple, but also evocative phrase where you said that you wanted to find out where English lives in India, and you kind of describe the habitation of English in India in your sections, which are titled with this, for want of a better phrase, very minimalistic title. So your your sections are named, intriguingly, Law, Touch, Text, Sound, and Sight. Um, Of course, you know, the logic of this would come out by and by as we go through the sections. But right now, could you give us, um, like, speak very briefly about what made you arrange the book in this way
1: yeah so i think the motivation of writing the book itself sort of come came from again like you touched on it but this but sort of just conveying what the experience of english in india is and it's this weirdly stereophonic experience right like english is both to invoke an expression from rebecca wolkowitz it's both more than a language but it's also also less than a language in india and i wanted to sort of convey that experience and uh, And really, like, pay attention to this recognition at different moments, like, oh, this is also English, right? Like when you see it on the billboards where it's transliterated, where the Roman script is transliterating a different language, that's also English. Or when you see English on, you know, like a, a bureaucratic document, that's also English. It was this, like, recognition that I wanted to convey. And the chapter division, of course, is related to that because it helped me put my finger on the different modalities of linguistic experience and sort of name that experience at different moments. Um, I wanted to, I mean, something that we hear often about English in India is that only about 10% of the people in the country know the language, right? Like, or can read the language. And that's true. And yet English has this outside sort of symbolic and material life in the country as well. So a question that prompted me to write this book was, well, how does the other 90% experience this language, right? Like, they're not reading it. They're just... Like, how are they experiencing it? Are they seeing it? Are they touching it, you know, or are they like listening to it? And I think the so the titles of the different chapters are actually drawing attention to these different modalities of linguistics experience that make the language. and And what they're also doing is actually paying attention to the question of perception, right? Like English, of course, is a language of the colonial legacy. It is a language of transnational capitalism. But how is it experienced? And that's a question, of course, that comes to me from that opening anecdote about my grandmother, right? Like, does it become something else when someone reads it in a Hindi newspaper and then uses that word as if it were, in, as if it were Hindi? Or in the, in the usage of that word by this particular person, it becomes Hindi, right? We don't even hear it as English anymore. So I wanted to pay attention to perception because it's in this experience, I think, that English becomes a vernacular language. Hmm.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, we are. We are interestingly enough, we are recording this um, episode in the wake of a Twitter debate that happened yesterday between Ajay Devgan and Kajal about Hindi imposition and the role of, um, and you know, what is the lingua franca of of um, of India? And in all of these debates, uh, people who want to impose Hindi kind of sidestep English very, um, you know. Uh, carefully. Um, Okay. So your first chapter, in in the first chapter, you look at the life of English as it is inscribed in, it's called the law and as it is inscribed in legal institutions of democratic India. Um, What are the unique features of the linguistic landscape of India that sustains this life?
1: Yeah. So the first chapter, and I'm glad you brought up the Twitter debate conversation around Ajay Gun yesterday, because that actually, I think, can be understood through this chapter, and I'll say more about that in a second, but what this chapter is doing is that it's sort of tracing the life of English as India's associate official language. Um, It examines what led English, what debates, what characteristics of the language sort of made it suitable for this role, And, and what are the implications of the fact that English is not simply a language of the colonial state, But in continuation, but also in break of that fact, it's also a language of the post-colonial state. Um, A lot of scholarship exists, as you know, on English as a language of the British colonial state. But but what we haven't as scholars thought much about is what happens to the language after independence. And and that's what this chapter is doing. So I begin in sort of... um, early 20th century and thinking about language debates around what should be India's national language after independence, or what should be the place of English after the British leave, right? And I'm looking at figures like Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, Abdul Kalam Azad, and trying to sort of read through like how they're responding to these questions. And... And you have to remember that two things are happening at the same time. India is obviously going to be an independent nation state soon, but at the same time, the creation of Pakistan as an Islamic state is also imminent, right? Along with it, the specious sort of stigmatization of Urdu as only the language of Muslims in India, as this Muslim language. And and in this context, um, proponents of Hindi obviously want to push for Hindi, as some kind of national language, but it's a Hindi that's now been purged of its Arabic, Persian um, roots and words and beefed up, ironically, with a lot of Sanskrit words to create a sense of historical continuity that this is a language you know, of Sanskrit, of, of India. Um, so, so as this happens, uh, two things happen again. One is that this kind of Hindi is one fictitious, right? It's engineered towards some sort of romance of a a monolingual nation state. Uh, But it's also a language that's deeply um, incommensurable to the work that's cut out for it as a language of governance, right? It's not a language that people in India speak. Hindi is still actually not a language that's spoken by a lot of people in India. And that's a fact that we often, you know, Hindu nationalists often forget. It's not a language that's spoken by many in India. And now when it's sanskritized, it's also a specifically upper caste project. So... So in this context, in the 1949 constitution, English is actually anointed as India's official, associate official language. And what that's supposed to do is two things. It's obviously supplementing Hindi, but in two ways. One is that um, it's sort of uh, bringing to it a kind of modern character, right? English is modern. English is global. English can speak to other nation states in the world. There's a way in which English can sort of amplify it India's post-colonial ambitions, right, and it can supplement Hindi also as a language of state and governance in continuity with its role under the British. But at the same time, it also allows Hindi to sort of ward off conflict from other linguistic sort of um, claims, right? Other languages that are spoken in India. There's all that continues to be, and there was at the time also a, res- a lot of resistance from southern states, West Bengal, about like this preeminent status that was being accorded to Hindi. So English is able to sort of uh, deflect those claims that it's not just Hindi, it's also English, and it's actually all in the interest of practical governance, right? So I think those were some of the features of the linguistic landscape that made it possible for not only for Hindi to ascend to some sort of preeminent status in the country, but that but that status was only made possible through its relationship and allyship with English. And so what's interesting in the what's interesting in what's happening right now under the current administration is that while there is an attempt to nationalize hindi against other languages especially urdu for instance uh, english is actually not in question right because english has become an interesting ally in this project and that's not we often study hindi you know as an indian language in opposition to english for instance but something that i that i realize you know having worked on this project is that the that the story of these other languages is the story of English. The story of Hindi in India is also the story of English, and and those two need to be kept in view together.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that's interesting. You talked about these kind of conjoined lives of Indian English, but you also did talk about you know, the marking of a Sanskritizing, the upper caste marking of the Sanskritized English, which then again engenders. Um, an anti-caste potential in English, which is something that you talk about in chapter two. So um, moving on to chapter two, where you describe this kind of the anti-caste potential of English um, through the metaphor, and not just metaphor, but through the literalism also of touch. Could you give us an overview of what the texts are in the chapter and what your methods are?
1: Yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah, so this sec- uh, the second chapter, what it's doing is that it's sort of tracing the life of English in India as a language of Dalit assertion, as a language that Dalit writers and thinkers and political leaders have often turned to, both literally and symbolically, to contest the Brahminical um state and caste supremacy in India. So again, like English, obviously always has been this language of the colonial state, now also of the post-colonial state. But there's a way in which English also brings with it a promise of democracy. And that's also, again, like one of the ways in which English was sort of rationalized in in the post-colonial nationalist project, right? Just the one that I described in the previous chapter. English was preferable to other Indian languages, preferable also in some ways to Hindi because it was democratic, because it was foreign enough and neutral enough to mediate sort of uh, uh, both caste, but also linguistic sort of claims, right? So English always has this air of modernity and democracy and neutrality. And, and those are ideals that have also made it attractive to um, Dalit discourse and politics. So in this chapter, what I'm tracing is how different writers and po- political figures have at different points used the language. Ambedkar for instance um, wrote in English as a political stance right like he wrote in English precisely as a contestation as a rejection of the modern Sanskritite registers of other Indian languages. Chandrabhan Prasad who's somewhat of a controversial figure today has actually rather movingly said that learning English is like inheriting 100 acres of land and I think and I think there's what we need to take seriously is this promise of English to be generational sort of caste privilege, right? To think actually about the material consequences of knowing and having English. And that's what I wanted to draw attention to. So the, so the chapter sort of moves in two parts. Um, the first one actually traces um, Ambedkar, Pule, uh, Chandravan Prasad, and Kanchalaya, different figures who have made cases for English or written in English. Uh, Against sort of Brahminical supremacy, but also to contest it, and and then I write about two Dalit English poets who are really uh, a part of a generation of younger Dalit writers in India today who write in English and who have a rather strikingly different relationship to English uh, in comparison to other sort of Indian English writers who you know who are more sort of popular and famous both in India and also uh, globally. What's striking is that there is no sense of nostalgia for an India that may have existed before English, right? There's also no sense of ethical moral dilemma. What does it mean to write in the colonizers language? That's actually a really powerful move as far as they're concerned, right? It also carries the possibilities of anonymity in India whatever language you speak is shaped by your caste, right? Like what language you speak, what register of that language, what dialect, how you speak, whether you speak or you can actually write it. These are all caste-shaped experiences. And English, a language that's not originally uh, steeped in these caste injunctions, actually carries that potentiality of touch, right? It makes it possible to be somewhere you're not expected or allowed to be. Uh, whether that promise bears out or not is a different question, but the promise very much exists. Um, so that's the first part of the chapter. And in the second one, I turn to uh, Ajay Navarria, who's a Hindi Dalit writer, and his short stories that usually focus on an on a middle-class Dalit figure and thinking about their relationship in the shadow of the Mandal Commission to the English language, right? A language that's now perhaps in some context formally available in a way that it was not. Um, and I do that because because one of the sort of limitations of scholarly thinking that I encountered as I conceptualized this book was that we've often thought about English in India in English. but And that sort of limited what we know about English too, right? So I wanted to turn to other linguistic contexts and think about what is the discourse around this language. And and Ajay Varya stories like help me sort of uh flesh out what I notice in Ambedkar, what I notice in Pule, what I notice even in Chandrapan Prasad, and then sort of bring together what I think is this history of English in India as a language of anti-caste potential. Um so that's what that chapter is about.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: <clears throat> so yeah, and you know, you don't about English as a vehicle of of valid self assertion and self determination, and um, but the next chapter um, is kind of I don't I don't want to call it the obverse of this, but there is a kind of dichotomous relationship because in chapter three it is what centralizes the impossibility of English by which you mean you know these are novels where characters main characters cannot speak English for different reasons and with different consequences. Um, so, like, is this designed as a foil in some ways? And what do these novels offer us?
1: Yeah. So so just to give you a little backstory, this whole section, the sort of the two chapters, the pairing of these chapters, it began with me wanting to think about caste in Indian English literature, right? And, and something that became very quickly clear to me is that, of course, there's a way in which all of Indian English literature is caste-marked, right? Shankar actually says that, right? There's a way in which the lack of a mention of caste is obviously also a mark of upper caste privilege, right? So there's a way in which all of Indian English literature is marked by caste, and yet at the same time, there's there's really a very small number of novels and texts that actually uh, think about lower caste characters or feature Dalit characters, right? That number of novels is very small, and the And sort of the organization of that section is such that I wanted to actually begin with like, well, what have Dalit writers and thinkers said about English and then bring that knowledge to reading Indian English literature, especially novels that think about caste. So that's sort of how it began. So in some senses, I suppose it's a foil, but really it's a way of setting up a context and history to think about the question of caste in the Indian English novel, you know, in as much as I'm interested in the relationship between English and caste. One of the arguments And obviously I'm speaking in broad strokes, but one of the arguments that's made about Indian English literature is that, that it, what it shows us is that English is really incommensurable to caste, right? Like that a novel like Mulkaraj Anand's Untouchable, for instance, what that novel shows us that there is a mismatch between the linguistic medium of the novel, which is English and the subject of novel, who's this young manual scavenger, who's trying to sort of figure out a life or imagine a life outside of caste, But but what I show is actually that's not entirely true. So the novel is, you know, this modernist novel. It follows Baka, who's the main character, who's this young manuel scavenger, like a day in his life. And and in my reading, what's happening is that you know this is Baka wanting to imagine a life that is not marked by caste. And and so the novel offers like three possibilities. There's Gandhi and his, you know, really messed up relationship to caste and like how untouchability is bad, but caste is okay. So there's Gandhi, there's Marx, and then there's the technology of the flesh, which will make Baka's job a little bit more tolerable, right? But actually, what happens earlier in the novel is that the novel actually begins with him wanting to learn the English language. And that's not a possibility that's given any play in the novel. And of course, it's not a possibility that, um, as scholars, we've thought a lot about. So what I wanted to do in this chapter was... To take that desire for English seriously and to historically situate the fact of this novel with the fact that Ambedkar was writing in English around the same time as well. So so to me, so to me, what seems is that there is that there is a the impossibility of speaking for these characters is actually really ironic, right? Because an Indian English novel is actually the space in which English and caste are play out together Uh, but we don't necessarily read it as that and to me the impossibility of speaking in English is actually a reflection on us as writers and readers of these novels right like why can't we take that desire seriously Um, and what if we were to take that desire seriously how would that change our understanding of the relationship between English and you know um, Dalit assertion seriously, or how would it change our understanding of what the relationship between English and caste is. And, and to me, that's, that's a way of reading in the shadow of the history that, that the previous chapter describes.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, what, what's really interesting for me, um, I think, because you named it, you know, this. I think this is in the text section, and um, text by, I don't want to go into a lot of uh, theory, but, I mean, text by um, conventional understanding is kind of a, is, is, is defines itself by the logic of presence. But then what you are Doing is kind of turning it on its own head to a certain extent and looking at what you know what yeah, shakes out yeah. there. Um, finally, uh, your last two chapters are also a kind of pairing, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know mm-hmm. sound and sight. Um, so, in the when you study in this chapter where you study this English as a sound object, um, what are the you know you began by talking about the stereophonic understanding of English in India, and so. What genres and forms of sound are you reading here?
1: Yeah, I'm actually the most, I mean, if I can choose a favorite chapter in the book, I'm most excited about the possibility of thinking about language through sound. And I'm quite excited by the thread that this chapter um, opens for us. Um, I think English as sound uh, allows us to think about a whole world of non-textual sort of experiences and expressions. And and sound also, of course, immediately makes it possible for us in more concrete terms of the bodies that are speaking, questions of embodiment, materiality, reception, right? Listening is such an important aspect of auditory cultures. Um, And as I write in the book, like anglophone, a term that's used to sort of talk about English literatures that are not from the US and UK, it places a really productive emphasis on speakers of English. And speakers refers to bodies, people who speak, um, but also technology, the mediations that make those uh, Bodies and languages heard. Um, so in this chapter, what I'm doing is actually tr- mapping out those two um, meanings of speakers. So, so I actually begin rather, um, to my mind, provocatively <laughs> with this idea of English as a possible mother tongue. That's a wild idea in India. English is no one's mother tongue, but but you know, I begin anecdotally about my experience of learning English from my mom, who actually you know, uh, despite her caste and class privilege, did not. Speak uh, does not speak English, but she taught me how to speak English and to think about these moments, uh, these different experiences of speaking English, either aspirationally or under a sense of compulsion. So this chapter begins with thinking about the idea of the mother tongue. And I have two um, examples or two sort of uh, ways in which I map it out. So one is through the protest of um, against the Indian state and Indian army in Manipur uh, by a political group of women who call themselves the Mothers of Manorama. And this is also a way of acknowledging the history of English in what the mainland calls the Northeast northeast India. So thinking about uh, a region that's heavily militarized by the Indian state and how English becomes a way of protesting against that same state. So the slogan that these women used was Indian army rape us. We're all Manorama's mothers. So that's one scene that I examine as sort of um, an example of sound, the sounds of English in India. And it's really a way of thinking about English as the language of global protest, right? And how it becomes a language that also is turned back on the colonial and the post-colonial state. So that's one. And in the second section of the chapter, I'm thinking about literatures that are written in english and translated into english from the same uh, region of the uh, of the country so the northeast so i'm thinking about themsela and Yumla bam Ibomcha, and thinking about how their works both sort of draw on oral cultures that are native to the experiences that are writing about but also imbue the english language with a kind of orality right where it becomes a language of bearing witness to the to the trauma and life of life in this heavily militarized region, right? Like, And these are stories that are uh, particularly sort of resonant with sounds of violence, of gunshots, of cries. So thinking about these two instances of the sounds of English, but also English as a particular kind of sound in English. Um, And I think something that this, that thinking about sound does for us is also just that it brings us back to the question of perception and listening as a way of sort of acknowledging who is speaking, right? Like something I say in this chapter is that I never thought of my mom as an English speaker or I never thought of my grandmother as an English speaker, but they were speaking English all along. So, so this is also a way of bringing into focus parts of India that have different relationships to English, but then don't actually get accounted for or examined in the in, you know, stories of English in India.
2: Yeah, that is that is fascinating. I mean, when you think of when you think of sounds living inside the language, you th- think about sounds that make um, phonemic meaning, so to speak. But here you are talking about sounds which are which we think about as housed in our environment, but not necessarily in language. That's really fascinating. But I think also kind of that's a good segue to the last chapter, which really stands out because I. I was so fascinated by your description of uh, English as a visual thing, as a visually perceived thing, because in your last chapter you study English as uh, a thing with visual appearance and you study its use in cinema. So um, how does this figurality of English and especially one that is cinematically representable, how does this come about? So I
1: think literacy is key here too, right? And it sort of, um, It sort of draws from my interest in thinking about well, how do people who don't know English like make sense of it, or how do they sort of maybe they don't make sense of it at all, maybe it's a completely nonsensical thing for them, but like how do they experience it? And what film allows me to do is plot that question of how English is read within quotes by many who do not recognize, uh, you know, many who don't know how to read it or only recognize the script, and in that script, see some aura of authority and power but again like don't actually know how to read it semantically so English, uh, so film allows me to sort of plot that problem um, of how English becomes I- iconic without legibility necessarily um, so something that I say in this chapter is that much of the reading of English today is actually of the order of seeing, and that's something that again like if you walk through a street in India you would you would see that, right? English is everywhere on billboards and signages and, you know, like in films, it's there. Uh, But I don't know who's reading it and whether they're reading it as English or not. So there's a way in which English, uh, what we understand as global English, the global hegemony of English is not actually everyone reading it and like indoctrinated by its logic, but it's actually this weird sort of experience of a language, which they may or may not understand. Um, And and the Roman script, for instance, the visuality, the iconicity of Ro- the Roman script is really important in this context too because, um, because this allows, again, like this moment of continuity between different languages, right, like tran- through transliteration, Hindi or Bengali or, you know, Punjabi or whatever, like other languages can be written in English. They can be, they can convey the same kind of social, cultural capital that advertisers might want to convey, but it's also not English at all. It's on, It's Hindi or it's Bengali or it's Punjabi. Um, and and I wanted to focus on this sort of visual life of English because this transmutation uh, in um, in transliteration is actually to me like an inversion of colonial philology, right? Like there was a time when um, Asiatic languages were not rational. It was Western imperial languages that were rational. Uh, and And here it's the English language that becomes weirdly like pictographic or uh, becomes hieroglyphic, right? It becomes like an image to unpack rather than, you know, um, a language to read. So I wanted to talk about that. And and Roderwick's idea of figurality in a way that sort of is intermedial, that's asking us to think about not only what is written, but also what's seen, especially in relation to time. So film is allowing me as a medium to trace that. Film, of course, is also... Contributing to that iconic life of English, it's contributing to that visual life of English. But, but it's, but what I'm trying to say is that it's not as if film necessarily, uh, film is some sort of preeminent media form that makes it possible makes English to circulate uh, possible for English to circulate in this way. But what cinema does in this in this um, in this book is that it makes it possible for us to imagine. How English might circulate, and obviously it's all speculative in some ways. I don't know how someone who does not know how to read English reads it, but this seems to be like one way of thinking about it.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, it is it is speculative, but it's also um, you grew up in India, but this is you know your lived reality. I mean, I was just thinking of like movie posters and how um, you know publicity or conversations about cinema, which is let's say, almost entirely in Hindi would still have English or Roman movie
1: signage. Yeah, there's movie signage, there's film songs that have English lyrics and that, again, like, become a part of people's, you know, everyday vernacular, even if they don't actually know. Like, the word sexy, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, is, it's not as if, people who don't know english don't know what that word means so so cinema so hindi cinema definitely like contributes to that and i think there's a shift also in the way in which urdu used to be a language of hindi cinema at a certain point of time but with its bollywoodization and with other sort of political forces at play there's clearly more english that also catapults bollywood as a kind of aspirational um space yeah yeah yeah
2: um yeah and again i mean i, I don't want to go back to Twitter, but it's really fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting that like, this is also sort of, you know, kind of germane to, like right now what's happening, I'm not a film scholar, but, you know, there is a kind of resurgence in uh, the interest or Bollywood's interest in films uh, from the southern states of India. And this kind of addition of Hindi, like the the addition of Hindi as this kind of broad marker, and then, then it becomes...
1: Yeah, it's such a great Zumba. example of how, like, what happens under a sign, under the sign of a particular language can be quite different from how that language is politically mobilized, and I think we're seeing yeah. that in um, exactly in what's happening right now.
2: Yeah. Um, okay. So um, finally, my uh, I can't let you go without asking you about what you're working on right now. I know that you are uh, co-editing this volume called "Thinking with an Accent." So what is that about? What else are you working on? And what can yeah. you tell us
1: about? So I, in fact, did finish co-editing this collection. Um, it's, an, it's a collection of interdisciplinary essays on accent. And the book is called Thinking with an Accent Toward a New Object, Method, and Practice. And what it's doing is that it's examining accent as an object in different fields, disciplinary fields, and industries, and developing a method of reading listening and interpreting depending on which field people are in um, a method that does not stigmatize the re, uh, the speaker who's supposed to be accented but actually pays attention to the conditions in which anyone or anything becomes accented so I have an essay uh, beyond sort of the introduction that we all co-wrote. I have an essay that argues that um, accent linguistic and literary emerges in the embodied sort of relationship of the reader and the text. So I'm looking at Amitabh Ghosh's Ibis trilogy who obviously plays with accents a lot, especially as accents as biographies of migration, right? Like accent is the argument in some ways that Amitabh Ghosh is making about a specific historical moment uh, and a specific geographical context. Um, but what's interesting is that accents in his novels are also slippery. They, you know, there's a way in which the narrator sort of tells us about a specific accent with a lot of authority, but then those accents also become slippery markers of identity as people, other characters listen to them. So, I'm, so I'm exploring this, uh, exploring accent not necessarily as a characteristic of Gogol's style or of Gosh's novels, but accent as a way of ethical relationality and accent as a way of reading that implicates the reader, right? Like when I look at an accent on a particular, like I can only notice the accents in a book that I already know, right? Um, You can write, like if a novel is written in Bengali and English and, you know, like uses Bengali, I don't know any Bengali or I don't know, you know, anything beyond what my friends have taught me. So there's a way in which what I read in a text is going to be limited by what knowledges I bring to it. And and so I'm thinking about accent as this event of sort of listening, as an event of listening that makes ethical relationality possible. Um, uh, so there's that. And then I've also been, and this is something I wanted to touch on in the context of uh, I think the third chapter we discussed about Dalit writers. The two young writers who I'm writing about, Yogesh Metra and Chandra Mohan Satyanathan, they're both writers who sort of gained some sort of fame, like sort of became big on the internet before they became popular, you know, became published, for instance. And I think there's a lot of writing and reading of English specifically, but of all kinds of languages that is happening on the internet, right? Like novels, for instance, can, even Chetan Bhagat's novels, for instance, can be published in paperback, but they're often heard on YouTube. So I feel like there's a way in which contemporary literature globally, but especially contemporary literature in India is is deeply intermedial. So building out from that accent anthology and my work on Gauche's novels, what I'm curious to develop is a kind of a practice of reading that is attentive to that intermediality, right? Even in Gauche, it's not just the act of looking at the words and the, typographic markers on the page it's also like i'm listening to the language in my head bringing to bear on it what i know of south asian sort of languages and then making sense of it so i feel like there's a way in which contemporary reading cultures and questions of literary and linguistic difference that like, come together and i trying to tease that out through a project that i'm developing on intermediality and in reading practices
2: that sounds one this sounds like a wonderful and you know a necessary project, not least to kind of uh, bat because accents are also within even within academia, accents are kind of markers of power. Um, that so you, you feel if you yeah, like literal
1: accent how you and I might <laughs> yeah. speak or how I how we may be heard, right? Yeah. Let's be clear, it's not actually anything yes. about how we speak. Yeah. And the other yeah. thing interesting about accents is it's not just how we might be speaking, we may be speaking to our minds. Good English, but the moment someone looks at us a brown person yes. and they hear something yeah. else entirely, yeah, I know,
2: so, yeah, yeah. No, I've I've had an experience in this kind of person who, not maliciously mm-hmm. at all, represented my own accent back to me, and I was like, I don't think that I
1: speak. That. And again, I think that say, tells us uh, a lot more about that person than it does about us. But but that's not right. how knowledge yes. around accent is framed right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, which is why it's crucial that you kind of frame mm-hmm. accent as a function of listening rather than speaking. That's that's really mm-hmm. um brilliant. Um Aksha, am thank you so much for talking to us and I'm so grateful. This was a fascinating um um you know glimpse into your work and I'm so excited about th- this volume that's coming out um uh, Thank you, Sharon. So
1: this was much. so fun and I hope we get to talk again sometime. Thank you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.